you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Grab your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Luke. We started last week studying through the Gospel of Luke, and we got as far as the introduction, the first four verses there. We saw that Luke is writing this huge two-volume masterpiece work to this person by the name of Theophilus, and he's writing it for the reason that Theophilus' faith will be confirmed or certified or made certain. And we talked about that. We talked about how it is the written word that causes our faith to be made certain. We talked about how God never expects or asks or wants us to believe in Him based on some blind leap of faith. Instead, God is careful to give us evidence and proofs. We talked about how Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that that He gave many proofs of His resurrection. We we talked about the the Bereans and how they were commended for being people that searched the Scriptures for proofs, for evidence, for what they believed. And so we talked about the certainty of faith that comes from that. And so today we begin in earnest looking through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look today at a a fairly lengthy passage, about 50 verses. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have a lengthy message this morning, but it does mean that there is a large chunk of Scripture that we're going to look at. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, beginning from verse 5. And let's just begin by reading. I think we'll read through verse 56. Let's just begin by just kind of reading that. And as I read through it, If you can just follow along with me and I'll make some comments as we go through and then we'll start to analyze what Luke has said for us here. Beginning from verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So Zechariah was a bit of an unusual priest in the the sense that not only was he from from the Levitical priestly tribe of Levi, but also his wife was as well, which wasn't a requirement, but he was, in a way of speaking, he was doubly priestly because Elizabeth was of the tribe of Aaron as well. And then verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they walked, they were righteous and they walked blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they were without blame in the sense that they were perfect or sinless. But it does mean that their walk with Christ was covered by the blood of Jesus, that they were converted, they were regenerate, uh, not perfect people, but they were, in the sense of, of standing before God, they stood blamelessly before Him. So they were both described in this way. Then verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So the uh, the, the curse of barrenness appears to have settled on Elizabeth and Zechariah. You have certainly heard that in these days that for a couple to be childless was just about the worst thing socially and culturally that could happen to, especially to, to God-fearing people. It was seen by, by 
others as a curse from God. It was the judgment of God upon them that God had not blessed them with children. And so they are advanced in years, which means that they have lived a long time under this supposed curse of barrenness. Immediately we think back to Abraham and Sarah. We think to Hannah. We think to the other stories of barrenness in the Old Testament. And it's maybe difficult for us to relate because our culture doesn't see uh, things the same way. In fact, oftentimes we look at childless couples today with favor and we think there's a wise couple that has chosen not to have children. Um, and you snicker about that. But, um, we, we, we don't have that same sort of stigma for childless couples today. So it's hard for us to relate to living in this culture as a barren couple. Elizabeth and Zechariah lived under such a, um, a social curse, so to speak. And they were both advanced in years. Now, verse 8, Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So this is, as you probably heard, sort of a once-in-a-lifetime event for Zechariah. His division of, of the priesthood was the division that was on duty in this particular time. There were far more priests than there were priestly duties. So they had to take turns. And so they, would, they were divid, divided up into divisions. And, and certain divisions would cover the priestly duties at, in the temple in certain times. And when your division was on duty, then it was literally just like a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing that you were the one that was chosen to enter into the temple. Not the Holy of Holies, but enter into the inner part of the temple. And you would take the oil and the fragrances and you'd pour them on the fire and the incense would come up and the smoke would come up and the people would be outside worshiping and they would see the smoke leading from the temple and to them that was the signal, that was the visual cue that God had come down and met with His people. And so once in a lifetime, you would, could be the one that actually did that. This is Zechariah's moment. And he is inside doing this, verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So the consistent reaction of people in Scripture when they encounter sinlessness, the consistent reaction is always to be distressed and troubled and fearful. Whenever people encounter sinlessness in the form of a sinless angel or a manifestation of God, then their reaction is, woe is me, for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful person. They're troubled in their spirit and they're greatly fearful. I always sort of, I guess, chuckle in a sad sort of way when I hear people talk brazenly about how they will interact with God when they see Him. I'm going to ask God this, and I want to know that that sort of thing. And all that is is good to to think about, like we talked about a couple Sundays ago, three Sundays ago. We will be with God with our sin nature removed. So that distress, that fear will be gone, but at the same time, it's not gone now. And so it's, it's not spiritually healthy, I don't think, to think of ourselves as talking so brazenly with God. The Scriptures give us example after example of men and women encountering sinless angels and manifestations of God and being greatly troubled about themselves and greatly fearful. And then we see the most common 
often repeated command in Scripture, by far, fear not. Do not be afraid. Over and over, hundreds of times, Scripture, we're commanded to not be afraid. Do not be afraid, said the angel to Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So I've often thought about what prayer was it that Zechariah, that the angel is referring to, that Zechariah's was heard. Was it Zechariah's prayer for a child? Or was it Zechariah's prayer for salvation for Israel? And we're not told, but I guess that we could we could really say, well, both, because certainly Zechariah and Elizabeth have prayed for a child. And certainly, as God-fearing people, they've prayed for the salvation of their people. And here in one answer comes both. Comes a child to them, and this child is the forerunner of the Messiah. He will announce the coming of the Messiah. So sort of a two-for-one thing there. And then verse 13, you shall call his name John. Verse 14, and you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And, and we remember there what Jesus says about John later on. Of those born of women, there's none greater than John. So he'll be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable how often Scripture contrasts drunkenness from wine with filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't know if you've ever made that connection, but Scripture, I don't know, maybe four, five, six times, makes the connection between drunken, drunkenness with wine and filled with the Spirit. He won't, he must not drink wine or strong drink, but instead he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So we wonder, was John Elijah? Maybe you thought of that question because it seems that it, the scriptures seem to imply that almost like John was this reincarnate Elijah, like Elijah had come back in John. And that wasn't what happened. Elijah wasn't reincarnated. He didn't come back into physical existence in John. Luke clearly says that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And even Jesus says that, no, he's not Elijah. John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But we are told that he does what he does. He lives in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Much that we could say about that, but he's not Elijah reincarnate. He's one who was endowed with this certain filling of the Spirit that was like Elijah or reminiscent of Elijah. Exactly. So he will go before him in the Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And a people prepared would be a people that were repentant. That's how that they are to be made prepared for the coming of Messiah is that they needed repentant hearts because that was John's message. John's message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he baptized in a baptism of repentance. That was his whole message was was repent. And so we see the connection there, a repentant heart in the context of the people of Israel made them ready to receive Messiah, just like a repentant heart in you makes you ready to receive Messiah. 
And in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now notice the wisdom of Zechariah. I'm an old man, and I would have said, we're both old. But he doesn't. He says, I'm old, and my wife is advanced in years. So uh, he uh, he phrases that real well, doesn't he? I'm old and my, my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So Zechariah cannot even stand in the presence of an angel. And yet Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of the Lord. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days of in, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So we see the curse, the reproach of barrenness. God has taken that away, for she has conceived. Then verse 26. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Again, no one seems to be comfortable in the presence of an angel. She's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of the greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Again, the most common command in Scripture, don't fear. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you, have, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the, sh the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For my Lord, I'm sorry, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my, faith, my Savior. For he has looked on the, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So we'll stop there. This is, of course, a story that is unique to Luke. Matthew, of course, records the visitation to Mary and the conception of Jesus. But Luke is the only one that records the visit to Zechariah, the barrenness of Elizabeth, the the promise of John, the birth of John. And so this is um, another story that, that is unique to Luke. Now, as we look at this story, it becomes very clear. Again, Luke, he told us already that he's going to offer an orderly account. And so it becomes very clear just how orderly this account is because it's hard to mistake the paralleling stories here. It's hard to mistake the visitation by Gabriel to Zechariah, the announcement of a miraculous pregnancy, the announcement of the name of the baby, the reaction of the one who hears, then the reaction of the angel, and then the angel goes away, and then there's this um, uniting together, there's this connection between the two women, and there's the, the angel, the same angel, Gabriel, visits Mary, and once again, there's the same sort of elements are following through that story as well. There's the announcement of a miraculous pregnancy, There is the reaction to that announcement, and then there are the instructions from the angel even down to the name of the child. And then there's this connection that we see between the two women, and we see even the connection between the two babies as they even connect to one another still in the womb. And then if we were to read the rest of the story through through the end of chapter 1, we would see that there's then the birth of the first baby and the announcement of that birth. And then there's the the opening of the tongue of Zechariah and he praises God. And then there's the birth of Jesus. And then there's the announcement of that birth. And then there's the praising of God on the lips of the angels. And then in the chapter two on the lips of the shepherds and so on. So the, the, the parallels between the two stories are it's impossible to miss them. Luke has has designed this story, has put the story together in such a way to make a very clear point. And the point that he's making is he he wants the reader to compare and to contrast the births of Jesus and John. He wants us to see the parallels that we just talked about. He also wants us to see the contrasts, because in addition to many similarities, there's also some important differences between the two stories. He wants us to see the contrast between, first of all, John has been miraculously conceived in an elderly couple that's sterile. Jesus has been miraculously conceived in, we don't know about Joseph, but we do know that Mary is a very young virgin. So the opposite takes place there. Um, we see the names, the meaning of the names. John's name is, is God is gracious. But then Jesus' name means Savior. That he will save his people. 
John will prepare for the arrival of Jesus. And when Jesus arrives, his reign will be forever. His reign will be established and it will never come to an end. So we see some parallels and we see some contrasts there. So what Luke is doing here is Luke is, I think, following a prescription that that Scripture always has for us. And this is one, I think, very helpful rule of thumb as we study our Scriptures. It's always helpful for me to keep in mind that Scripture always wants the reader to insert themselves into the story. Scripture always wants you, the reader, to insert yourself into what you're reading, emotionally and spiritually. Luke wants the reader, and who's the reader? Theophilus. Luke wants Theophilus to insert himself into what he's reading. He wants Theophilus to ask himself, how would I react to that? What if an angel came to me? And what if an angel said that to me? And what if this happened to me? And what if this over here happened to me? What would be my feelings? What would be my reaction? What would be my belief should this happen to me? So always we want to ask ourselves, what, how would I fit into this? What would my reaction be? So as Theophilus is contemplating what Luke is writing here, Luke, I think, wants to get across three points to Theophilus. First of all, he wants Theophilus to see very plainly, very clearly, the power and the sovereignty of God. Theophilus is, as we said last week, of course, he would have been a Roman. And Romans, by nature, by character, were people that had a real difficult time believing in an all-powerful, all-present, good God. Romans were born and bred to believe in the system of Roman gods and Greek gods and goddesses. And if you've ever, in high school, when you had to study mythology, you, you, you realize some things very clearly about this, these gods and goddesses is they are more powerful than people, but not a lot. And they have sort of their own little realm, but it's not anything like an exhaustive realm. It was maybe they ruled, maybe they were the god of the field, or maybe they were the god of the river, or maybe they were the god of the storm. But they certainly weren't all powerful. And they most certainly weren't all good. In fact, they weren't even deserving of respect. They were, they consistently displayed the worst character traits of humans to a greater degree. Jealousy, pettiness, violence, lust. They displayed all those characteristics to an even greater degree than people did. First soap operas. Exactly, the first soap opera, so to speak. So to a Roman, the idea of an all-powerful, all-sovereign, good God was foreign. And so Luke wants Theophilus to very clearly see the power of God. Because what are the, what's the angel saying? The angel is saying, in both instances, he's saying what will come to pass. He's not predicting the future. There's a, there's a big difference between predicting the future and what Gabriel does here. Predicting the future is making a good guess as to what will happen and how it will happen based on what you know from the past. 
That's not what Gabriel's doing. Gabriel is saying what will happen. And he's doing it because he stands in the presence of God who is the one who makes it happen. And not only is he saying what will happen, but he's saying things that will happen that are humanly impossible. You know, it's one thing to predict the future in a way that's so vague and normal as to be meaningless. You know, just, I just loathe Chinese fortune cookies. And, I mean, aren't they so dumb? What they have to say, it's like, all right, that is meaningless. You, you will face frustration within the next few days, and if you overcome it, you will have success. All right? Or horoscopes are the same. They're so vague and meaningless as to they apply to whatever you want them to apply to. It's a whole different thing for Gabriel to say, here's what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is humanly impossible. Never happened before. There has never been a virgin birth before. There have been a few instances of elderly, barren people conceiving, but there has never been a virgin birth before. Did I look at you when I said that? I didn't mean to. I was even thinking about like, wow. How do we how do we plug ourselves into this? And I was thinking about the other day. I, I quit reading Acts and went to Lupin. Got to Michael read the first novel, you know. And I thought about how Zachariah, you know, was like, what? You know, what's gonna happen? What? I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he questioned it, you know. And I remember when Dean. How can this be since we're older? Right, I couldn't my read the pregnancy test because I had my contacts in. And I needed my reading glasses. So I said, Harry, you need to read this test. And he puts his reading glasses on. And he's like, what? How'd this happen? He was just like Zachariah. Is that No clear Louisiana. There was no test, though, back in that time. But you digress. So, uh, what was I saying? Luke wants Theophilus, who who is already, remember the, the point is that Theophilus will have certainty of faith. And so Theophilus will have certainty of faith as he, as a Roman, sees and realizes that, that this God is not as the ones that I've been taught about. This is an all-powerful God who speaks the things that he brings about and what he brings about in this instance are, are humanly impossible. So um, that's the first thing that uh, Luke wants Theophilus to see. The second thing that Luke wants Theophilus to see is he wants to see, Theophilus to see that Jesus is far greater than John. That comes through very clear. Look at verse 32, of course, speaking to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his king, of his kingdom there will be no end. So he wants Theophilus to see the greatness of Jesus compared to John, that Jesus is far greater. As a Roman, Theophilus is going to struggle with the, the idea of an all-powerful good God. He's also going to struggle with the idea of a common man 
and not just a common man, but a common criminal man who is the Son of God. Romans, remember we mentioned a few, well last week we mentioned Mark's Gospel that's written in a Roman context and it's, and it's written to people who appreciate authority and power as Romans did. Well, the flip side of that was they despised commonness and weakness and they, they despised a person who was low enough to be nailed to a piece of wood naked and left there until the life had been drained from him. They utterly scorned that. And so not only was Jesus just a common tradesperson and a Jew, but he was a common criminal crucified on a piece of wood. So Theophilus, like many others, would have struggled with realizing that this man was the Son of God. And so Luke wants to begin right away with helping Theophilus to see the greatness of Jesus. So that's the second thing that he wants him to see. And then thirdly, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Thirdly, Luke wants Theophilus to see that there is a right way and a wrong way to respond to the power of God. There's a right way and a wrong way to respond to the promise and the power of God. Now, this also, I think, is something that's hard to miss in the passage because Luke sets up the contrast so clearly that you would you would really have to, to read the passage in a very hurried and superficial way to not grasp the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. How they're both told these incredible promises of God and they both react with words that seem similar but then the reaction of Gabriel is so very different between Zechariah and, and Mary. Mary is praised and Mary is given even a partial explanation. Zechariah is struck mute. And so Theophilus wants, or Luke wants Theophilus to see the difference between both of these reactions. Let's just read the reactions real quickly. From verse um, 18, this is Zechariah's reaction. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. Behold, you will now be silent, because you did not believe my words. In contrast, Mary, verse 34, says, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her. You can almost hear the gentleness in his voice. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child will be born will be called holy, etc. So Theophilus needs to see that there is a right way and a wrong way to respond to the power of God, to the promise of God when it seems to defy um, our human logic. So Zechariah, let's think for just a minute about Zechariah. Zechariah finds himself in a position that's very much like his patron, Abraham. Abraham, if you'll recall, was elderly. He also had a wife who was advanced in years. And they were also promised a miracle baby. And the promise of a miracle baby for them was one that didn't come to pass right away. Instead, it took decades for this to come to fruition. And Abraham, if you'll recall, just like Sarah, they both sort of went through a process of belief. 
Abraham, I don't think, ever disbelieved, but certainly Abraham's belief in the promise grew more certain over the years. And so did Sarah's. And so Abraham is in a, in a similar position as Zechariah, who's also aged and also promised a miracle baby. So take a look in your notes at Romans chapter 4, verse 19. This is Abraham. This is what Paul writes of Abraham in regards to the promise, the seemingly impossible promise that he received from God. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Zechariah finds himself in the position of Abraham, yet Abraham's faith didn't weaken, but Zechariah's faith does seem to weaken, and he seems to have a disbelief at what the angel is saying to him. Should that have been... Zechariah should look back on Abraham because God always proved he can do it. Exactly. For that reason and a number of other reasons, Zechariah's faith should have been stronger, but we'll talk about his, his temporary weakness of faith and we'll sort of flesh all that out. You're exactly right that God has already proved himself numerous times to be able to do not only the impossible, but to also bring fruit to the barren womb. So... Um, Zechariah's faith seems to falter and he seems to fall into sort of this uh, disbelief. And I think that this is even confirmed by his wife. If you look down at verse 45, uh, Elizabeth is speaking, uh, 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 we assume in private, to Mary. And she says, blessed is she, meaning you, Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, you can almost read between the lines and, and, and hear her saying, and my husband didn't believe when he was told. And that's why I've had six months of quiet around the house. So Mary does believe, Zechariah doesn't. So the two reactions, Gabriel's reaction to Zechariah tells us that the heart was different. The Zechariah's heart was different from Mary's heart. But even without Gabriel's reaction, I think that we can see that the, even in the words of Zechariah, Zechariah says, how will I know this? When Mary says, how will this be? So Zechariah seems to be asking for evidence while Mary seems to be asking for explanation. Uh, Zechariah seems to be asking for proof while Mary seems to be seeking understanding. Um, Mary, of course, is given the partial explanation. Zechariah is given the rebuke. The point that Theophilus is to get here is be like Mary, don't be like Zechariah. You're being told, and you have been told, some things about God and His promises, and some of those things to you seem very difficult to believe. Don't be like Zechariah, be like Mary. Don't be the one that doubts, be the one that believes. And we find ourselves in the same position, don't we? We find ourselves in the same position of being asked to believe that which, which is difficult to believe. And we struggle with evidence and proof and how do we find certainty in all that. And we come down in all different kinds of places on that. I'll, I'll never, I think as long as I live, I'll never forget one experience I had. This was years ago in the 90s. When I was working, uh, I was working as an estimator in, in construction. And I go to a construction site to do some measuring and some estimation. And the builder was on site. And this was in the 90s. If you remember the 90s, 
as soon as you could get a house built, it sold, right? And so people were building houses with no buyers. They would just build them, and people would buy them. Well, this was sort of towards the end of that, and it was slowing down, and I went to estimate this one job site, and the builder was there, and he he had two houses on the same street that were completed and weren't sold. And so I'm in there, we're talking, and the conversations turn the conversation turns to spiritual matters and you know gospel presentation, that sort of thing. And his answer to me was, I will believe in God if these two houses sell this week. And it was just like chills came over. You'll never believe in me. You'll never. You'll never believe in God if your requirement to believe in Him is irrefutable proof that, oh, by the way, is also a blessing to you. You'll never believe in Him. So He was asking in His heart for evidence that um, was unreasonable evidence. He faced the promise of God and his response to the promise of God was to sinfully ask for more evidence before he believed. We are also facing the promise of God this week with the events in Charleston because God promises us, doesn't he? That he brings good out of evil. And so we can look at that situation and say, but how? How are you going to do that? So we face the same question. When, when thinking, when receiving the promises of God, do we ask for more evidence? Do we ask, how will this be? Or as Mary, do we ask for understanding or explanation? Doesn't that seem to me like when people challenge God, you know, like, for example, if someone puts themselves in a dangerous situation, and they like, well, I believe in God, he'll protect me. So that, I, that's what I would call. person says, well, you believe in God, but God gives you a brain and tells you don't put yourself in unnecessary harm. Yeah. Which person is right? Uh, well, I think that we would follow Jesus' example there when Satan came to him mm-hmm. and said, the scriptures say that you won't even hurt a heel. So throw yourself off the top of the temple and let's see if, and Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God. So I, that that's not what I would, I would call that testing God. Uh, flaunting to God, God, um, you've promised this, uh, let me make it more difficult for you to fulfill that promise, um, which is which is enormously sinful for us to do. Except for, I mean, a person going into the mission field might even know how very dangerous it is. But they don't go to the mission field in order to test God. Yeah. They go to the mission field to proclaim the gospel, yes. believing in the promise of God as they enter danger. Yes. The one who says, uh, or throw yourself off the yeah. off the yeah. steeple yeah. of the temple and see if God protects you. Yeah, two two totally different hearts and two di- totally different motives going on there. So um, we face the promise of God and we have a choice. Um, how do we face that? There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And all this, of course, the ultimate context for Theophilus and for us is the promise of God is, though you be unrighteous. Your unrighteousness will be taken from you and replaced with righteousness if you believe that the cross of Jesus Christ has paid your penalty. Faith in that covers your unrighteousness and covers you with the righteousness of Christ. That's the promise of God. 
Now we can face that promise by saying, yeah, but how? Or we can face that promise with the heart of Mary, yes, but how? Right? So let's sort of flesh that out. I think there's two lessons that will help us navigate the responses of Zechariah and the response of, of Mary and what Luke is hoping to evoke from Theophilus, the response of Theophilus as he too hears of the promises of God. And the first lesson that, uh, that we should see is that it is not wrong to want evidence for our faith. It is not wrong to want evidence for our faith. Remember what Luke just said. I'm writing down an orderly account. Now, the orderly account, another way to put that is an orderly uh, uh, telling of the evidences of what you're to believe in. So if Luke would have Theophilus to, to say that we should never ask for evidence, then he can stop writing right now because that's what he's about to give him. Or we remember Acts chapter 1, verse 3, when Jesus made himself uh, he appeared for 40 days and showed many proofs of his resurrection or uh, the praising of the Bereans as the Bereans searched the scriptures to test what they had been taught and what they believed. So we are, we are not wrong to ask for more evidence for our faith. However, there is a evil that can come about in asking for too much evidence. Let me sort of explain that, but first, let me show you from Luke's own gospel here, where he gives us example of that. Flip over, hold your place there in chapter 1, flip over to chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 29. And we'll see Jesus' reaction to those who sinfully sought after more evidence than what was needed. Look at verse 29 of chapter 11. This is called the sign of Jonah section here. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So clearly, Jesus discerns their hearts and he discerns in their hearts that though they seek for signs, they're not seeking for signs for the purpose of belief. He's not belittling those who desire evidence for their faith. Instead, he's berating those who would say to God in their hearts, I need irrefutable evidence. I need evidence that is provable. I need these two houses to sell this week, and then I'll believe. He's berating those who seek in an evil way after complete evidence uh, in, order to, um, in order to make their faith provable. Let me um, draw something for us real quick. I'm, I've got the little portable board here. And let me draw a pie chart. You know a pie chart? A pie chart of faith. Now, if this is faith, if this is faith, and we ask ourselves, how much of faith is evidence? And how much of faith is belief in like Hebrews 11 verse 1? Belief in that which can't be seen, or the assurance of things not seen. We might say, well, all of faith is belief in that which is not seen, but that's that's not the case. If we were to say, well, I don't know how it, it would divide up, but if you were to say something like this, saving faith 
is a combination of evidence and faith in that which can't have evidence. It's not devoid of evidence. But neither is evidence the majority of it either. It makes up a, por- a portion of faith. There is evidence for our faith. We don't believe blindly. But evidence for our belief is certainly not all of it, but it is a portion of it. So Hebrews 11 verse 6, uh, verse, uh, verse 6 tells us that the only way that we please God is with faith. And a few verses earlier, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, it told us that faith is the assurance of things not seen. So, think of it this way. The heart that asks God for evidence for our faith is the heart that is asking God to increase this so that this can decrease. Not altogether wrong, is it? It's not altogether wrong to say, God, I have this. But this section is awfully big. Can you make this section smaller and this section bigger? Does that make sense? Can you make this bigger so that this gets a little smaller? That's the heart of Mary, I think. Mary is saying, yes, I believe. But how? I'm a virgin. How? Help me to grasp this by making it more manageable by making this bigger. So the heart that says to God, I have this and I want this. So how do you how do you adjust the hearts that don't need a lot of evidence? Is that wrong? Uh hang on to that thought for just one second, okay? Um and if I forget to come back to it, remind me. The heart that says to God, remember Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So the heart that says to Him, well, I want all of this to be evidence. You, first of all, you're saying to God, there is no place in my heart to please you. Because my heart can only please you by the assurance of things not seen and not provable. So if I need complete, irrefutable proof of you, then then there's nothing left in my heart that can be pleasing to you. So that's the first thing that heart is saying. And the second thing that that heart is saying is that um, this thing that you call faith has no place for me. I only have place for evidence. And so that's that's the berating. That's the that's what Jesus is saying. This is an evil generation because you want all evidence. It's not wrong to say, help us believe. That's what the scriptures are for. That's what the testimony of other believers is for. You don't believe in Jesus without evidence. You have evidence. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have incredible evidence in your heart and in your life. You're a new person. You're changed. If you're not a believer in Christ, then you have evidence around you in the people that you know. You have evidence that you saw all over the news this week. When people who had their family members slaughtered by a murderer will say, we love you and we forgive you and you're welcome back in our church. And is that not evidence? So, but that's not all that there is. So the heart that would please God must be a heart that that says, well, okay, we have this. Now we, we need this. 
I'm having trouble with this, so can you make the faith side of this smaller by increasing the evidence side? So now, the reverse of this is to say, well, what about the heart that says, I don't need any faith? I mean, I don't need any evidence. It's all faith. That's really nonsense um, to say that I don't need any evidence because, again, what I just said was you all have evidence. You have the Scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit. Without those things, there is no faith. There is no belief. Can you believe in Jesus without the Holy Spirit and without His Word? No. And so all of us have, God has given to all of us some evidence. And it's okay as we struggle with faith to ask Him for more but the heart that asks him for more cannot be that sinful, evil heart that says, we don't like that faith. We're not comfortable with that faith part. We want that to be minimized or go away. And we want to live in the land of evidence. And so it is so typical that I think Zechariah's story is very helpful for us. When Zechariah is told that Elizabeth will be with child, and he's going to be John, etc., etc., and Zechariah's response is, tell me how I know this. We should, we should understand that that was a temporary falling into disbelief. And we know that because Luke just said, back in verse 6, that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly before God. And they were righteous before God. So before that happens, we're told of the righteousness of Zechariah. After it happens, we're told of the righteousness of Zechariah again. The birth of John finally happens. Uh, Zechariah's mouth is loosed. He praises God. Verse 67, he sings God's praises. And that's the last we ever hear of Zechariah or Elizabeth as they're praising God for the birth of the miracle baby. God didn't, God didn't see Zechariah's doubt and say, oh, okay, let me find somebody else. I didn't know you were going to doubt me. No. The miracle baby still came. <coughs> Zachariah's experience was tantamount, I think, to Peter's experience on that awful, awful, awful night. Anybody ever had a bad day? Peter had a really <laughs> bad day when he denied Jesus three times. But that was not Peter's faith. What did Jesus say? Before that, he said, your faith is going to be tested. And I'm going to pray that after you fall, you will turn again and use this experience to help your brothers. So Peter's episodes that night, they were not indicative of his faith. They were a temporary stumbling into disbelief, which we all do. If you think about your faith, if you think about... Um, your uh, faith in your faith in God, then I'm going to suggest to you, if I can draw another line, I'm going to suggest to you that your faith is not something like this, but instead it's something like this, in which in which you would honestly say to yourself, "There's times of belief, and there's times of not so much belief." And I wish the times of not so much belief would go away, but they, they keep coming back. And so the point that Luke wants to make to Theophilus is you're struggling with some difficult things to believe. 
as you come to believe these things, don't despair when one day you think that you're doubting what you believed yesterday. That experience is more common than abnormal. So uh, the point there is don't despair when you find yourself in temporary unbelief. When you find yourself in those times of doubting what you know to be true, does it trouble you? Unbelievers are not troubled by their own unbelief. Unbelievers are not bothered that they don't believe. It is only believers that are troubled by doubts. So that in itself, I think, would qualify as yet another evidence. When you find yourself being disturbed that you don't believe as though, as you know you should, the disturbance itself is evidence for you that your heart is saying to you, you're not believing what you know to be true. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.